there in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. For he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him in many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, mocked him, arrayed him in gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for behold... For before they were at enmity between themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do come before thee this morning and ask that thou wouldst open our ears and our hearts that we might hear and receive thy word. For these are not the words of men, but these are the words of the living God. These are words prescribed by thy spirit. We ask, O Lord, that thou would be pleased to come and teach us and instruct us by the work of thy Holy Spirit. Open my mouth and give me utterance that I might proclaim glorious truths out of thy word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who I had the opportunity to hear preach many years ago when I was living in Glasgow, Scotland, tells the account as a young man of completing his university studies and not certain of his direction in life. But he happened to go to the weekly Bible study one week at the local Church of Scotland, and the study was from the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And in that study, he says his mind was filled with images from this text. And he said, my life was not the same. He was a young believer. He was walking with Christ. But he said at that moment, something clicked in him. And he suddenly saw the things of earth grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. I am sure Dr. Ferguson could recount that event from his life better than I could. Especially with his strong Glaswegian accent. But he makes the point that is the heartbeat of Luke's gospel account. It tells the story of ourselves from scene to scene. 
of this Christ who stands in humiliation so that he might be exalted. As the scene shifts from that ecclesiastical trial in chapter 22 of Jesus to this civil trial that we find in chapter 23, it gives us a wonderful picture of Christ. As we come to this text, do we simply come reading a historical account, wanting to know all the details of what happened in the trial of Jesus? Or do we come moved, as Dr. Ferguson describes, with a sense of his dying love for us? This passage is so apropos for our observance of the Lord's Supper, because here, in all of the account before us, we don't want to miss our Savior in all of His beauty, in all of His glory. It is difficult sometimes for people to see Christ in His glory as He's standing there frail and broken in in humiliation before his accusers. And yet there's some wonderful things out of this passage that are good instruction for us and remind us of the innocent one who stands condemned before his accusers. As we come to this passage, there are three things we want to consider this morning. First of all, we want to consider the hostility of his accusers, the subtlety of his accusers, and then the dignity of the accused, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider this morning the hostility of his accusers, we find that there in verse 1 that the multitude begins to bring Jesus before Pilate. Now, if you remember from the previous chapter, the multitude is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin meaning that council of 71 men in Israel. They were the supreme courts. They were, you might say, the session. They were the court of priests Elders and scribes. They are the leaders of the Jewish church. And they have formed an alliance with the Roman authorities against Jesus. Now, we're not going to go into all the background and and the the history of this because there's quite a bit here. I would encourage you even on the Lord's Day afternoon, to go to chapter 19 of John's account of the gospel. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in their account of this, but John gives more detail, and I think it's wonderful to see how John lays all of this out in his account of the gospel. But as these elders, chief priests and scribes, and even some of the people of Israel gathered together. They came with a desire to form an alliance against Jesus. They are wicked, malicious men who speak false accusations against him. But here in our text, we see how they are aligned together To accuse Jesus of crimes he never committed. Oh, there's so many accounts and examples of people who have been tried for crimes who were innocent. And yet here Jesus is led unto Pilate by this band of church leaders to stand before the Roman government. And verse 2 tells us they began to accuse him. Now, they've already violated their own law. 
the Jews have. They violated the Old Testament because they violated that commandment that says, Thou shalt not, what? Bear false witness against thy neighbor. No matter who your neighbor is, even if you despise him, you are not to bring any accusation against him. And so they've already accused him. They've already condemned him. He is accused before they even bring any evidence against him. But it's intriguing as we look at the account to see the charges that are brought against him. They're contrived. They're ridiculous charges. And it says they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is the Christ. And so there's three charges that initially they bring there in verse 2. They found him perverting the nation, and of course they don't give you any detail as to what that means. Um, he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar, which is a flat-out lie. And then they say he himself is Christ, a king, which there's an element of truth in that, but there's also a falsehood in that. But as they come, <clears throat> notice the text says, we found this fellow. They don't even call him man. Man. Some translations put the word man there. But really it's the word fellow. They don't even give him a rightful title of rabbi, which is what he was. They even recognized him as a teacher, as a rabbi. And yet they call him fellow, which is just a form of just dismissing him and not giving him any credence or any honor. And so they accuse him of perverting the nation of Israel. How did he pervert the nation? There in chapter 22, <clears throat> he gives that account of Jesus standing before them when they brought him before the high priest. And he says, day by day I was in the temple. I was preaching and you never once came to arrest me. And so the account as we've seen before shows that they are in council together. Asking him, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And so they begin to, to bring all kinds of accusations. Art thou the son of man? Art thou the son of God? Then immediately they said, what need have we for any further witness? For we ourselves have heard from his mouth. At that point... And he says, we don't need any more evidence. We've made up our mind. But it's interesting here that at that point they couldn't do anything with Jesus. Because according to Roman law, any criminal, anyone who violated the law had to be charged by the Roman authorities. And so the, the Sanhedrin couldn't do anything with Jesus. So that's why they led him before Pilate. And as they led him before Pilate, Jesus is accused unjustly. It's interesting when you look at those charges. Again, they gave no evidence of how he perverted the nation. Most likely they had in mind that he was perverting the nation because of his teaching. But yet, if they were honest with themselves, his teaching was never a violation of God's law. His teaching was according to the miracles and signs he did. All of his miracles testified to the fact that he was more than just a teacher, that he was more than just a man. So how is it that he perverted the nation? 
And yet here we find that oftentimes those who oppose Christ, those who oppose his kingdom will come up with all kinds of contrived charges. He perverted the nation. And here's, here's the, the one that I just am puzzled with. He forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. They had no regard for Caesar. The Jews hated Caesar. And not only that, but where did Jesus ever command people not to give tribute to Caesar? Because if you go back a number of chapters, they began to question him about loyalty to Caesar. And Jesus says, give me a coin. And it's a Roman coin. And whose face is on that? Whose image is on that Roman coin? Caesar. What does Jesus say? Well, don't give any honor to him, right? No, that's not what he said. He says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And render unto God that which is God's. And so Jesus affirmed that they were to give tribute even to the most ruthless godless ruler. And I think at this point we need to understand that even as Christians in our day, we must always, as the scripture tells us, give honor to whom honor is due, to give tribute to whom tribute is due. Jesus does not violate or deviate from the law of God, and yet the law of God recognizes that we are to give tribute and honor to those in rule over us. And so Jesus never once told his disciples or told the crowds of people that they were not to give tribute to Caesar. That is a flat-out lie. Now, isn't it ironic that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders were so bent on destroying Jesus and removing him that they actually came up with a lie to bring false charges against him. And then the third one, they said that he himself declares that he is king. Well, when you go back to the previous text, there in chapter 22, Verse 69, Jesus says, hereafter, that is, after the passion, the suffering, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this which he knew was going to come, he says, the Son of Man shall sit on the right hand of the power of God. Speaking of his glorious ascension after his resurrection. And then they began to ask, Art thou the Son of God? And he says, Yes, you say that I am. Then what further need do we have? Immediately when he states that he will sit on the right hand of the power of God after his death and resurrection, they said, We don't need any more witness. He has blasphemed himself. And so just in the opening verses of this text, we see that they accuse him. In fact, he's brought before Pilate. Pilate says, Art thou the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, Thou sayest it. In John's gospel, it's a little more clear. He says, Yes, that is right. I am. He uses the statement, I am, which is interesting, particularly in John's account, showing that he's more than just a man. He's more than just a king. But he himself is God. And so, Peter, Pilate's response is, is absolutely amazing. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Now, you have to understand, <clears throat> in this account, and John's account bears it out well, that this is Passover, or during Passover season. And so, the Jews would not go into Pilate's court because there might be leavened bread there. And they did not want to defile themselves. That's how holy they were. 
And so they did not go into Pilate's chamber or into Pilate's house. Jesus is standing privately before Pilate. And Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Ironic that the Jews found all of these accusations and faults. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And immediately, you can just see the agitation of the Sanhedrin. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And the text says they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people. He teaches throughout Jewelry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now notice before, excuse me, notice before the, in the religious trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. When he comes before the Roman government, what do they accuse him of? Not blasphemy. They accuse him of wanting to overthrow Caesar and his kingdom. Isn't it amazing how they shift just so that they might condemn Jesus? But we find here that they are fierce, that they are agitated, and what they're doing is they're stirring up Pilate so that he might bring charges against the Lord Jesus. But as we see these charges brought against Jesus, as we see the hostility of his accusers, we see the subtlety of his accusers. Their accusations were brought to the Roman court so that they might sway that court to condemn Jesus. As I said earlier, the Jews could not try him or pass a sentence against him. Only the Roman court could judge and carry out the penalty that they would prescribe. Before the high priest, he was accused of blasphemy. But here, before Pilate, he's accused of sedition. Oh, we've seen a lot of that lately. People accused of sedition. You use that word sedition and what does that immediately do? It just ignites people. It gets them all charged up. And that's exactly what happened here. They accuse him of sedition. The religious leaders hated Rome And yet now suddenly they are in cahoots with Rome. But notice the subtlety here in the text. When Pilate finds no fault in this man, notice what they do. This is quite interesting. He stirs up the people. Throughout all of Jewry or throughout all of Judea, that's actually the word that is more understood there, that throughout all of Judea, he stirs up the people. He causes trouble. Beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, we wouldn't think anything of that on the surface, but this is the subtlety of these religious leaders. Because when Pilate heard that word Galilee, he asked, well, is this man a Galilean? And as soon as he knew that Jesus was a Galilean, what does he do? He brings him before Herod, who is a governor of that district of Galilee. Pilate is is the... The leader, he is like the Caesar. He is the the ruler over Rome. 
But now when he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean, he immediately sends him to Herod's jurisdiction. But notice the subtlety here. Pilate, I think in many ways, is a very honorable man. He did not want to condemn an innocent man. And yet, we see the subtlety. It's almost a political move. Pilate just simply wants to be done with it. He says, oh, well, if he's a Galilean, I can't charge him. Herod can charge him. So immediately he sends him to Herod. So he's been before the religious tribunal. Now he's before the Roman court. He's been before Pilate. Now he's going to Herod. Remember, this is Herod, the son of the Herod, who put out the decree when Jesus was born that all male children under two years of age should be put to death. This Herod had never met Jesus. But this Herod knew everything about him. And verse 8 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. We don't know the motives because oftentimes in the heart of ungodless and wicked men and women, there are motives and they're always impure. So we don't know all the motives, but it does state that he was glad. He was desirous to see him of a long season because he heard of his ministry. He heard of his teaching. He heard of the many miracles. But notice here in verse 8, he had heard many things of him. And he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Here's the subtlety. Pilate could care less if this, or Herod could care less if this man was really the son of God. Herod didn't care. He wanted him perhaps to perform some miracle. He, he probably had in mind, well, he's another miracle worker. He's a man who can just, on a whim, do some trick. Would that have changed Herod's mind and heart if Jesus had begun to, to work some miracle in his presence? Absolutely not. It didn't have any effect on many people In the crowd, it didn't have an effect on the Jewish leaders of that day when he worked miracles. So how would it change the heart of Herod? Many people look for miracles and signs and wonders. But that cannot change a cold, dead, stony heart. And verse 9 says, when he questioned him, in many words... And so there was an exchange of questioning here. This is a good thing we learn from the Lord Jesus, that questioning is always a good thing in an investigation, but it's the right kind of questioning. Notice the text says, He answered him nothing. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus was not going to work a miracle at a whim just for Herod's amusement. He questioned him in many words, but he answered nothing. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accused, uh, stood vehemently and accused him. They're getting agitated because, look, we're, we're trying to condemn Jesus. We can't do anything, but you can. And so there's a subtlety. There's a, there's a political strategy here. Oh, beware of political strategies, even among those who claim to be conservative. Political strategies are oftentimes a way just to get rid of something. And that's really what Pilate wanted to do. Okay, I don't have to deal with him now, so I'll pass him off to Herod. 
And now Herod had the Jewish leaders breathing down his neck. And they stood and vehemently with with anger, with hostility, accused him. Notice verse 11 says, And Herod with his men of war set him at naught. They, they simply dismissed it. They didn't want anything to do with this man. And as... This continues on. Luke doesn't record this. The other two gospel accounts do not record this. But they mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. John's gospel account says that before they arrayed him in a robe, they struck him. They beat him. And so the scene here, it's not the gory scene that Hollywood likes to prescribe in some of its movies about the life of Christ. He's simply standing there before Herod, saying nothing, and now he is further mocked, he's fur- further charged, and they put him in a robe in John's Gospel in chapter 19, says that they, they began to to bow before him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him. This was not a trial. This was not a legitimate court. But oh, how godless men will do anything to silence the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in our own day, That is still the case. But oh, notice verse 12. The same day, Pilate and Herod became good friends. They hated each other before. But now they form a common alliance against Christ. And there was an enmity. Between them. But now they are suddenly best friends as they both conspire against Christ. But the text doesn't tell it, but here's the subtlety of Herod and Pilate. They worked out some kind of political compromise, they worked out some kind of deal. So that they could go ahead and have a full trial and condemn Jesus to death. There in verse 12, the Puritan commentator John Trapp says concerning verse 12 that here's an account, uses an illustration of two dogs that are fighting. And yet they can suddenly easily agree to pursue the rabbit that passes by them. And he uses that illustration to show here are two leaders fighting against each other. And suddenly they see the Lamb of God. And now they work together for a common good. Jesus is accused. Herod had expectations. But oh, the alliances that the forces of wicked men can contrive against the Lord Jesus. The passage that is so clear in our minds that comes to mind is Psalm chapter 2. There in Psalm chapter 2, David says, Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers <clears throat> take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away. But he that sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision or confusion. Here we find in a very graphic way that the kings of the earth have set themselves up against Christ. And how that is so true even today. That the leaders of the world, the nations of the earth, <coughs> plot in vain against this Christ. But I draw your attention to the words of Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> there in Acts chapter 4, it describes Peter and John coming before the high priest as they are condemned. They ask, by what name do you do the things that you do? They question him. Verse 10 says, Be it known unto you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you Jews have crucified, and God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand whole. And as the passage goes on, it shows that they are threatened, and yet all of this fulfills the purpose of God. Verse 26, The kings of the earth stood, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Verse 27, <clears throat> For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and counsel determined beforehand to be done. We don't want to miss in all of this, even in the mockery of this so-called court or trial, that all of this was ordained of God, that even Jesus... <clears throat> reminds his disciples three times that the Son of Man would be rejected, that he would be delivered, that he would be put to death, and that he would rise again. And so all of this certainly is according to God's perfect will. Charles Spurgeon <clears throat> says, Behold how sinners will agree together when Christ is slaughtered. They shake hands together when he is to die. But like Judas, who betrayed Jesus, they conspire against this Christ. But I want us to note thirdly and finally, and this is the beauty of the passage, and I, I think it's often overlooked, but we see the dignity of the one who is accused. The scene appears that the accusers are on full display. When you read the gospel accounts, they are in full display. But if you're looking at a canvas and you, you see in the foreground these accusers, you see Jesus standing in the background of that canvas. That's, that's really what we see on display here. <laughs> but oftentimes when we read it, don't we just see the accusers? We never really see what's going on with Christ. Jesus is in the background. <coughs> and yet how often we miss that scene but Jesus, who is in the background, <clears throat> is standing here, exhausted, weak, frail, tired, and as John 19 says, beaten or flogged. 
Here is Christ in perfect humanity, standing in full, standing before them in his humiliation. He who condescended to us, the Son of God, who condescended to us in his incarnation and now in his suffering and in his impending death is in deep humiliation, severely tempted, yet entirely spotless without sin. Here's your Savior. They were looking at this one who claimed to be king. And when Pilate says, I find no fault in him, Pilate's standing there looking at him and him thinking, this is the man you're accusing of blasphemy? This is the man you're accusing of sedition? This is the man you're accusing of overthrowing the Roman government? Are you kidding? This man is so weak and frail, he couldn't do anything. And oftentimes in our blindness and in our coldness and in our hardness, we miss the beautiful picture of the dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of that. Because in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, he stood before his shearers and was silent. If somebody came up and just simply slapped me on the side of my face, how do you think I would respond? The same way you would. You would be ready to, to attack someone. And yet for Jesus to stand there and face all of that humiliation, is more than we can understand. And we're tempted to say, well, he was, he was fully God. Oh, but don't miss the fact that he's fully man. He is man in body and soul, and yet without sin. I don't know how he withstood all of that suffering. But here stands... The Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. Here is the Lamb of God condemned, whose blood is poured out for sinners. How do we miss that? How do we not see Jesus' attitude and humility? is really what struck Pilate. That's why Pilate says, I can find no fault. Three times in chapter 23, I find no fault. I find no fault. He is innocent. And yet Jesus stands there with an attitude of humility. He doesn't have the demeanor of an earthly king. But I want to draw quickly, as we draw this all to a close, there in John 18.34. John chapter 18, verse 34. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Saith thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it of thee? Now that was not a smart remark or comment. He was simply asking point. And Pilate's response is, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Pilate is still intrigued. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Now is my kingdom not from here. And you can read all of the, the, the detail there in John. Jesus could have called a legion of angels to deliver him. Jesus could have done a number of things to just slip past him. He had done that before. And yet we see Christ in all of his dignity, not uttering a word of self-defense. Christ is calm. He is respectful in his response. And yet he is led as a lamb before his shearers and was dumb. As we think on this Christ, and there's much more we can say, we see a majestic, glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ standing in silence. He stood pale, suffering, yet humble, patient, and undisturbed without bitterness, without resentment, and without anxiety. The words of the Apostle Peter from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth rightly. Yet he bore in his own body our sins. Here's your Savior. Who is this? This is the one we will see pictured in the broken bread, in the cup of wine. All of this pictures for us. Christ, this humiliated, suffering servant. And what is your response to this? Oh, it's a nice message. Good job, Pastor. No, our response should be, what, what do I do when I understand the depth of his suffering and his humiliation on my behalf? When we are wronged, when we are hurt, even by other believers... When false accusations are made against us, what do we do? That's enough. I've had enough. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. What do we do? We begin to get bitter. We begin to complain. We we begin to to think of, of how we have been mistreated or how someone has said something against us. And yet, here's the lesson for us, and I don't want us to leave here just thinking, okay, this is the account of Jesus before the Roman government. I want us to see here that this calls us that if we identify with this Christ, if we follow him as disciples, then aren't we too called to suffer every wrong, every false accusation, Everything that is inflicted against us. Because if we too are suffering servants who are called to follow Christ. Then we are called to bear the same affliction. The same hurt. The same rejection. The same humiliation. But if Christ stood humbly. Before Rome, how we as his disciples must always take that posture of humility, even in our service one to another. Well, that's not my job. That's your job. That's how we approach our service to one another sometimes. 
Oops, sorry, it didn't get done. Oops, sorry, it didn't get done. And this is how we look at our service. And yet our service to one another is out of a sense of humility and brokenness. That this Christ who bore the debt of our sin, this Christ who stands in our stead, calls us to show humility and service one to another. What a beautiful appendage for us as we come to the table of the Lord. We find here this Savior and this account tells us that he suffered it all for our sakes. Calvin says a dog barks when his master is attacked. He says, I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet remain silent. And then he said this final word. Let the dogs bark. Let the wolves howl. Let the crows caw. For the lion is still king. And they could not silence Jesus because he is the king who lives forever. And this is our king who rules over us and who calls us to serve one another. Perhaps you do not know this Christ. Perhaps you have never publicly declared your allegiance to this Christ. Oh, I would warn you against making allegiances and alliances with those who do not follow Christ. Form your alliances with those who are followers of Christ. And may we, together, walk as disciples of Christ. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks this morning that you stood condemned before Pilate, and yet you never responded. You never violated the law of God in thought, word, or deed. Lord Jesus Christ, we endear ourselves unto thee. We plead with thee that thou wouldst Indeed, grant unto us strength that we might bear under the weight of every affliction and every trial, under persecution, knowing that you will one day avenge all of our enemies. But may you have total preeminence in our lives, and may we submit to you as our King. We give thee all thanks and praise. In thy glorious, matchless name. Amen.